Chef Spiro podcast at Spiro Chef on Instagram. Jai Gibbons, Chef Spiro, knife nerd and adventurer. Uh, this one is an absolute cracker. My name is Isaac, aka Shrek. I'm the host of the New Spiro podcast. It's interviews with spearfishing legends from all over the planet. Today, we're going to Sydney to chat at Spiro Chef Jai and talk about his journey as a Spiro, his journey as a chef and some seafood concepts that are absolute game changers. We talk dry aging. Uh, we talk learning how to how to do the raw and how to care for your catch properly. There's all sorts of absolute gems and nuggets sprinkled throughout this interview. Before we get there, I want to get into two listener, or actually two Spiro Chef contributors to 99 Spiro Recipes. It's available on Kickstarter right now, only for about 24 hours. If you want to get in, this is your last gasp opportunity. It's available on noobspiro.com forward slash 99 recipes. Let's have a listen to a couple of voice messages. Hey Noob Spiro community, my name is Rachel from Life Short Stay Moist and I submitted a recipe to 99 Spiro Recipes. I really like the way the 99 Spiro Recipe concept unifies a range of different recipes from a range of different people because for me that's what spearfishing is about, being able to cook and share my catch with my friends and family. I was stoked to send in my lime coconut ceviche recipe, I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. I think the 99 Spiro recipes will change our spearfishing culture for the better by inspiring the average Spiro to diversify their palate. If you'd like to check out my lime coconut ceviche recipe, go to noobspiro.com slash 99 recipes and get yourself a copy now. Hey Shrek, it's the Lost Spiro Jez here down in Tasmania. Uh, recipe book was a brilliant idea, uh, stoked to submit one myself. Although I think my photos leave a little to be desired, um, I'm looking forward to when this gets put out and I can grab myself a copy and start trying out some new ones over the campfires around this wee island. Good stuff. Thanks, legends, for those voice messages. Again, check it out, noobspiro.com forward slash 99 recipes. We're in the dying minutes, the dying last gasp of this Kickstarter campaign. It's bringing 99 spare recipes to life. It's already funded, so don't worry about that. But if you want to get in and secure a reward, an extra special reward, it's not available anywhere else. Check it out, available noobspiro.com forward slash 99 recipes. Thanks for bringing this project to life. Let's get into this interview with Jai Gibbons at Spiro Chef. Here we go. I had a moment the other day on the Noob Spiro podcast where I felt like I'd made it. Manscaped sent me an email. They're sponsoring the podcast. So support for today's episode of the Noob Spiro podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. Now, they sent me a cool care package and I got to trial it out. I friggin' love it. I've got the Lawnmower 4.0. You can get yours at manscaped.com. Save 20% off and get free shipping if you use the code NoobSpiro in one word at manscaped.com. I friggin' love it. There's no more awkward mess hanging out the side of the smugglers anymore. My balls started doing recovery breathing. <laughs> Moments after I finished my shave, I want you to get what I've got. Smooth goodness down there. Uh, your balls will thank you. Use the code at Noobspiro, all in one word, at manscaped.com. 20% off free shipping, manscaped.com, Noobspiro. Unlock your confidence. Always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Your balls will thank you. Adreno.com.au, the home of recipes, blogs, videos, equipment reviews, and an obnoxiously large range of spearfishing equipment for frothers like you. Not only that, but spearfishing trips and courses 
courses and trips that I sometimes get to go on. Check them out at adreno.com.au. It's a Spiro's best friend. Check them out. And if you want to buy gear, pump in the code NoobSpiro to save $20 on every purchase over $200. You can use that online, in-store. Use the code NoobSpiro, save some cash, and support the NoobSpiro podcast. Shop with adreno.com.au. Have you visited neptonics.com? If you are building spear guns, I bet you have. They have got a huge assortment of top quality components for gun builders. Not only that, but they sell all sorts of equipment. They are the one-stop shop for all spearfishing essentials, particularly in the USA. They also have free shipping on orders over $99 in the USA. And a great deal for Noobs today, you can save 10% off your entire order when you use the code NOOB10 at checkout. Go to niptonics.com, use the code NOOB10, 10% off. An absolute pleasure to, to welcome Jai Gibbons to the show today. He's at Sparrow Chef on Instagram. Jai has been uh, cooking up a storm for some years and uh, and it all started somewhere. But welcome first and foremost, uh, Jai, to the show. Yeah, mate. Thanks for having me on. I've pretty much watched, I think, every I listen to every single Noob Sparrow podcast, so I'm frothing. Do you reckon we need to have the video edition as well? Or is the audio enough? What do you think? Oh, audio is fine. Oh, no, I mean, like, in terms of the, just the general production of the podcast for, for, for most people that, you know, listen to it, do you think people would want to watch it as well? Um, Sorry, weird question to start the interview off on. Yeah, but. no, no, that's <laughs> fine. I, no, I reckon it's – I like the podcast because I just listen to work, like, to do it at work or yeah. I'm riding my bike to work or something. I'll just listen to it. Or even when I'm just cleaning at home, I'll just listen to it. Yeah, just nice. put my headphones on and listen to it and pass the time. Mm. So what do you do for work? I'm a chef. Okay. I work for Burke Street Bakery in Sydney. I'm the head chef right now. Mm. And where, where did uh, – okay, so let's let's get started in the spearfishing side of things for a start. So um, how old are you and where do you live and where did spearfishing start for you? So I live in Sydney. I'm 27. Yep. Spearfishing started for me about – just just under three years ago. Okay. Yeah, yeah. so. um, What made I you curious like, about it? What, what, why did you want to jump and hold know. your breath and start shooting fish? didn't even really know what it was, hey. Um, I like adventure. I grew up in the countryside. Yep. And I love going out and just like I used to just go out when I was really little and just like the whole day just explore just go through the forests and bush and just look for things. And there was lots of like ruins and stuff around where I grew up. So it was always interesting to see something different. And every time I'd go out, I'd just go a bit further, a bit, you know, around that corner and just see what's there. Okay. Um, so I'm, I got really intrigued kind of by nature and stuff. And we didn't really have the ocean. So we only, we only went to the beach a couple of times maybe every few years. Okay. Um, so I didn't really grow up around the ocean. And then oh, it was like probably about five years, four or five years ago, my partner um, knew that I really wanted to go up to Cairns yep. and see the rainforest and stuff. So we booked it. Um, she did it for my birthday and took me up there. And, um, yeah, I happened to go snorkeling on the Great Barrier Reef, like I think two different reefs. That's a good start. And, um, oh, mate, I was pretty nervous about it. Yeah. And I hopped in and um, 
was, I like swimming and stuff and I love playing around in the pool, but it's just a little bit different just seeing how insane it was, like how big everything is and just all the fish and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, that, um, that sparked some interest. Yeah. And then I got back home and I was like, oh, you know, we should go out to the beach and just um, see what's there. <laughs> so we went to um, that shitty big shop called Decathlon, grabbed some really trash gear. And just um, <laughs> one of my mates who I used to work with, um, he was keen too. So we just jumped in and made I think the first time we went out, we just kept swimming out and this huge big stingray it was like two meters wide just started swimming at me and I, I shot bricks, man. I was walking on water. I was walking on water. Like I was like, I didn't even think that that thing would be like, you know, 30, 40 meters from the shore where you just go and hang out at the beach. Yeah. So um, we did a few trips like that and just, no wetsuit, freezing cold water, probably like 20 degrees or 18 degrees, just jumping in with this foggy piece of shit mask, but just <laughs> loving it. Yeah, bit of a contrast from the Great Barrier though. Yeah, yeah, but, mate, I think I was just interested in it and um, just wanted to give it a crack. There was still enough there to sort of keep you curious. Yeah. And then I got a – I went to – um. I was looking it up on like online and stuff like snorkeling and then I saw a bit of free diving stuff and I was yeah. like, oh, wow, that looks pretty cool. And then I was like, oh, where, where can I buy like a proper mask? Mm. And I really like to, um, I guess, like when I'm going to do something, I like to like do a bit of research and like make sure I'm kind of not wasting my time or money. So I looked into it and, you know, like went on how to look at a few guides on how to choose a mask, went to Adreno got the mask, got some free diving fins, just plastic ones. And um, the guy's like, when are you going to start spearfishing, mate? When are you going to get a spear gun? I'm like, what's that? <laughs> like, I don't know what that, like, I, I didn't really get it. And then I sort of didn't really think too much about it. And then I was out diving again. And um, we were just like, you know, mainly just snorkeling and trying to grab onto rocks, maybe like two meters down. Didn't know how to equalize or anything. And um, I saw this bloke and I was like, what's he doing? He's got like a gun and a wetsuit. He looks like, a, like some army dude. <laughs> and he's like, he was just, he just dived down. I think it was only like 10 meters or something. And he just goes down underneath this cave. I'm just going, what the F is this guy doing? Like, it's just a crazy bloke. Like, what's he going to do? And then he swims back up holding a fish. And I was just like. How, like he was down there for so long. It was probably like 30 seconds, but, you know, like it's not that long, but, yeah, you know, just I was just like, how does he do that? Like how can you do that with your body? Like I just didn't realize that it was possible to like go that deep underwater holding your breath and come back up with a fish. And then anyway, long story short, I just did some more research and I ended up going and just sort of looking into it a bit and then um, deciding that I've got to do that. That's <laughs> what I've got to do. I've just got, I've got to send it. And then I looked, you know, like online and stuff quite a lot. And a lot of people were saying, just buy good gear. Don't waste your money. Yep. So I went and sold 
um, some of my bike stuff, scraped together about two grand and then just went into Adreno and just bought like a Salva My Hero and open oh, wow. cell wetsuit. I just told the guy, I was like, uh, this is sort of what I want to do and I've got this much money, just just get make me so I don't have to come back in here for at least six months. <laughs> <laughs> so I walk out like this idiot with like, you know, a mad gun and just looking like a legend. But um, just can't even get to like two, three metres. Like I'm just trash. I don't even know how to duck dive at all. That old classic cliche, all the gear and yeah. no idea. Yeah, exactly. And then, um, yeah, I just started going into, I think, like it was called Little Bay in Sydney. Yep. And just, um, yeah, just swimming out a bit further and a bit further. And I think the first or second time I went, I shot a rock kale. Okay. And I was like, oh, what is this? Like it was tiny, man. It was like 20 centimeters. It's like, but I was, I was so keen. I was like, this is so cool. I don't care. <laughs> don't care. Didn't know anything. Um, I kind of had a look at like the fish species and stuff and like knew a little bit about it from cooking and stuff. But like, obviously a lot of the species we don't really um, use in restaurants mm. that are in Sydney. Um, you know, we get most of the fish in restaurants from like New Zealand and stuff and all the like classics like John Dory yeah. and, you know, just the normal. Isn't it weird, eh? Like how... Yeah, like, like public perception determines what fish ends up in restaurants and that. And most people in the general public have no idea what really tastes good. Yeah, yeah, um, it's insane. Yeah. And it's also, it's kind of, um, oh, it's kind of sad though, but it's kind of cool for us because we actually can get our own fish. But most of the fish that you get from like the fish markets taste pretty bad. Mm. To be honest, like, and it would be hard for people who kind of don't have access to the high quality stuff that we do and don't have the option to treat it well to have good experiences mm. with certain fish. You know, like if you went and got some Luderix or something from the fish shop for like $3 a kilo, mate, you don't know what they've done with them and where they've caught them. They're probably just going to taste absolutely absolutely like disgusting you know they could have been caught five days ago just sitting in a bucket of water and they just keep hosing them down yeah just washing just, that rank yeah. ammonia type awful smell whatever it is yeah that, and the whole building smells like bleach you know it's just permeating through all the all the fish we're a bit spoiled so the rock cow i mean did you spin that up into a meal um actually first one it was so small I think I just fed it to my cat. Yeah. I cut yep. it up, had a smell of it, and then I was just like, oh, it's a bit small. I know it's legal. I feed it to my cat. But the second the second one I shot, I've shot, I think, three or four of them. The second one I shot, I was like, I'm going to try and cook this. Um, and I tasted a little bit of it, and it was, like, very weedy. And I was like, oh, it's pretty strong flavor. So I just made laksa. And I just like soaked the fillets in like turmeric water for a while. And it sort of like made the the flesh kind of take on that flavor more. And then like, you know, you add a lot of fish sauce and like heaps and heaps of other stuff. And it, it was edible, not too bad. So what, you, you're just soaking it in like cold fresh water with a couple of tablespoons of turmeric? Yeah. Just the fillets. Yeah, exactly. 
yeah, I just filleted it, diced it up and chucked it in some water with turmeric, put it in the fridge, a little bit of salt as well. How long did you leave it in there for? left it a couple of hours. Oh, right. and then yeah, you, just, And then you pull it out, drain the water and add the fish sauce and whatever else. Yeah, I, I just took it out and then just dried it off and I made it like a laksa and just poached it in the laksa. <sighs> Sounds good. Sounds like yeah. a good, sounds like a good way to use a fish like that. Yeah, I mean, it was I was so excited. You know what it's like when you shoot yeah. like your first fish or whatever. It doesn't really matter what it is because you you shot it and it's awesome. Hundred <laughs> percent. You know, it's that feeling. You're just like, yep, yeah, I don't don't really know what I'm doing, but this is cool. I'm just gonna enjoy it. Your spearfishing journey to me sounds a little bit like connect the dots. Like it it wasn't like some sudden epiphany it was this kind of like this like dominoes and it was like yeah. kind of yeah, man. in hindsight it almost seems inevitable but like it's funny yeah. that you remember all these sort of checkpoints along the way and then to making your first luxa with a, a rock cap <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah exactly that's pretty cool that's pretty yeah, cool. yeah it's it's definitely um a journey i guess that's the whole thing i love about spearfishing it's just a, an ever you know, just continuous journey that you're never going to end. Yeah. doesn't matter how good you think you are, you get in and you get rocked and then you're like, yeah, I'm not that good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it yeah. happens. Like you can't, you can't go in there with an ego or you just won't, won't enjoy yourself. And if you're not enjoying yourself, I find that it's. Um, go, and, go, and, go and play um, cricket or something. Yeah. It's just. Golf maybe. It's a hard sport to do takes a lot of patience and a lot of skill, mm. I think. Um, and for me, like, I'm always just trying to have a good time, mm. get something for dinner and just, you know, enjoy the journey, enjoy what I saw that day. Yeah. Try not to go in there with too much expectations. Um, obviously, we have, like, times of the year where you're going to target certain things or do certain things a bit more, mm. but still like, I guess I just go in there and give it a crack and see what I can learn. That's my attitude when I go in. Yeah. I love it. I think yeah. what, a couple of things you've identified and I want to hit on some of the struggles and obstacles you had. Um, yeah, for sure. Coming from the bush. I mean, you didn't grow up in like a fishing family and I'm sure you had a, a, a good general knowledge, but even in somewhere like Sydney, like the diversity of species that you can encounter and you're possibly likely to encounter as a, as a noob Spiro, um, there's still quite an array of species there to try and learn. And a lot of the fish ID books are kind of uh, that good and they're effective, but there's only so much information you can kind of take in at one time and experience seems to teach, teach you quite quickly as well. I mean, speak to that. How did you sort of grow in your fish ID skills learning the bag and size limits and then becoming more and more sort of refined in, in the way you go about that? Um, how I grew, I'm not going to lie, I shot a lot of shitty undersized fish probably. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and some fish that probably weren't, um, you know, meant to be shot. I applaud your honesty. Accident. I applaud but, your honesty. Yeah. And, but, you know, the thing that I tried to do um, – I think on my like fourth or fifth trip out, I actually met um, a guy called Simon Tripp who's been on the podcast. Yeah. Met him in the car park. It's and, um, it's probably, he was like, probably the best bloke you could run into down there. Yeah, and he was like, oh, mate, 
He was like, how do you go? And I'm like, terrible. And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, you've got to salvage my hero. Should be able to smash heaps of fish. And I'm like, I'm just not good. <laughs> and then he just laughed and he said, I had a giggle. And he said, I'm just not good at it, man. I'm, I'm putting effort in, but I'm, you know, got any tips? And he told me, go out there and do this and do that. I gave it a crack. Yeah. And then I think, um, yeah, not, I did sort of like, I tried to um, not post any pictures of the fish that I was shooting. <laughs> but some of the ones that were questionable, I did send to him. Yeah. Um, and that was really helpful. Like to have somebody so knowledgeable, like I didn't really realize, you know, how knowledgeable he was or, yep. you know, what his um, place in Sydney spearfishing is, but at the time, but like just having somebody there that would like be like, yeah, no worries, mate. Like, this is this and not judge, just give you the answer was helpful. And there was a few other people that I kind of met along the way that would do that as well for me. So like try to, cause you'd see, you see on the spearfishing pages, um, you know, if you shoot a rock kale or something, you're going to get like 50 people bag you out. Yeah. And it's not very encouraging. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not so good. So I try to stay away from that and just sort of, kept it like that. And I guess I, um, just kept on shooting fish really. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was it. Like I just kept on going in there and I did read all the, all the books and the guides and stuff. And I knew like, yeah, don't shoot this fish. Don't shoot that fish. And then I just sort of shoot a fish, um, that I thought didn't look illegal. Um, you know, it's, it's true. Like you just, it's hard. It's hard when you're beginning, like it's very hard to know the size as well. Like I struggled a lot with the size at the start because everything looks so massive with the goggles, mm. the mask, like it does look a lot bigger. Yeah. Some people um, struggle with that more than others. I mean, one thing yeah. I like about what you did is I think sometimes, and this can be true in many parts of the world is you can take note of what the no take species are and steer clear of that. And even the ones that have got very particular um, size limits, uh, you can steer clear of those too because it's like it's too easy to make mistakes. And then you you end up with a, you know, at least you know the half dozen species that you can't take. And then, yeah, and then exactly right. And then it's just a matter of, I mean, one way sort of like I remember doing it is just not shooting anything under thirty centimeters. You know, yeah. and, it, and it sounds easy. We're just talking about it on the podcast, but there's a lot of. Um, training for your brain and your eye and how those mechanics work and um, understand um, sort of uh, what, what would you call it like spatial um, you know a spatial awareness like where you can yeah. judge the size of something you know in the distance with Merck and variable yeah, exactly, and all yeah. the rest of it and yeah and the way that they sort of like behave as well can come you know like sometimes like you'll see like if the fish is like it's murky. It's like two meters vis and they're right in front of you. Like they're probably pretty small. Mm. You know what I mean? Like if they don't look huge, Yeah. but when it's 10 meters vis, it's a completely different story. But body language and finning style is another distinctive way that we um, ID fish as well. And I think sometimes you can look at a picture. Yes. But looking yeah. at it through murky vis or, you mm. know, with, you know, maybe um, a lack of light 
due to like whatever, you might be hunting around structure or something like that. Um, you know, colours are sometimes if you're below a certain depth, they're no help to you. Um, so you're looking for distinctive markings and, and, and the shape of the body yeah. and silhouette. But then exactly. you also, when you also sort of start to look at and understand the fish around you, then you start to see how they swim and move. And then you can you you've got a much better way to um, ID them, I think. But um, watching spearfishing vids can be helpful for that. Like even yeah, if you have- it was really good actually watching videos. Yep. Um, one of the hardest species in Sydney, I reckon, to differentiate would be like a black drummer and a groper. Okay. Blue groper and a black drummer. I find that when I started, often I I wouldn't pull the trigger on the drummers because I'd be scared that I would hit you know, the fish and pull it in, it would be a groper. Yeah. But um, I've, you know, I've, I've worked out that the fin at the back looks very different and the way that they swim is mm. completely different. Yeah, they yeah. use their tail to to push themselves and gropers use their um, pectoral fins to flap mm. and just glide. And once I kind of learned that, I could, you know, tell pretty good yeah, most nice. of the time and then I was starting to get more drummers. But... That was one of the fish. Most of the other fish, though, really, like, you can pretty much shoot nearly any fish in Sydney other than groper. There's a couple other fish that you can't shoot, but you probably won't see them very often anyway when you're starting. There is a lot of fish that isn't, um, doesn't have size limits too. Yep. Like leather jackets, um, goat fish. There's, you know, there's a couple different types of goat, goat fish. Um, mm. What else is there? There's lots of other fish that people like often probably wouldn't shoot, like even just, you know, yakas or um, what else is there? Like those long fin pikes and stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, they don't have size limits and, you know, most of those like leather jackets and goat fish are delicious. But when you shoot one that's 20 centimetres, it doesn't really give you any meat. You know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. Starting out, you sort of just got to, I guess, you got to find the balance between shooting some, you know, legal fish and not holding back too much and also still, you know, once you learn from that, kind of limiting yourself a little bit more to get something that will give you a m- more of a meal, I guess. <laughs> I guess that's like a, a good way to look at it for me anyway because like, if you don't, if you just swim around, some of the places in Sydney, there's a lot of pressure on them, and you don't. They the fish see a lot of spiros, mm. a lot. And when I started, sometimes I'd go out and I wouldn't even see a legal fish. Yep. I just, or I couldn't see it because I just didn't understand the terrain and where they were hiding. Yeah. Now I can go out in exactly the same spots and come home with fish every single time. Yeah. Nearly, you know, and. It's just because I understand the area and I know where to look in certain conditions. Um, but if I didn't see those fish, shoot those other fish, I don't think I would have learned as, as easily unless I guess I went with somebody else who showed me. But I think that learning yourself is a very important thing in spearfishing. I was, was going to ask you, like, do you think that, a lot of the lessons that you have to learn in spearing, you have to do it the hard way. Like, you you know, like, I mean, what, what parts of spearfishing do you think that you can, um, you know, learn by osmosis, either by like sort of hanging out with someone experienced or diving with someone experienced, or, you know, like hanging around in a spearfishing club environment or the club scene, 
or you um, know, doing a course? I mean, can you skip yeah. some of these some of these um, these obstacles? Um, I think that you can learn. A, I think a lot of the stuff you need to learn or see yourself and understand yourself. I think that if somebody good takes you out to a spot and shows you where the fish is, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be successful yeah. because you're not understanding how to work that terrain. You're being spoon fed. Yeah. But, but it's like you, it doesn't, it's sort of like, I don't know if you've ever been out with a new guy and you dive down and you know, there's fish there. Right. But if you don't know exactly where to look when you hit the bottom, you don't know what rock to look at, what position to have your body in, then you won't get a chance at those fish. And just because, you know, you take me out and show me where the fish are and tell me where to look doesn't mean that I will, you know, be in the right position. But when you learn it yourself and you understand how, you know, that cave works or that boulder works or how that pressure point works, you already know where to look. Mm. You already know what to do. So when you're in the area, you're not looking at all this wasted space. Yeah. You're not looking at things that you know that you, you've, if you've been to a spot 20 times and you've never, ever seen that species of fish in that spot, you'll never look there again. Yeah. You'll, you won't waste your time. You won't waste your time in that area. Yeah. That kind of stuff you cannot get by getting spoon fed. Yeah. And that will make you more successful, in my opinion, if you just get in there, get time in the water and listen. Um, but going out with some good Spiros, um, I've learned a lot of things that I guess you would say you couldn't just learn by yourself as well. Like it could be years and years of knowledge, understanding like water temperature changes and um, some of the things that I've been taught are like the seasons of fish. Yep. And I think that like unless you've been diving for like say five years, you're not going to put those dots together. Yep. That this, this week is the breeding week or the migration week of this species. Yeah. And when you know that week, you can just go out and target that fish all week. Like I've, I've been taken to a place and, you know, I'd never seen this much brim before. The guys say, you know, jump in. It's brim mating season. There's going to be brim. Just look for brim. <laughs> I get in and I see thousands of brim. Yeah. You know, huge ones. I just didn't even realize there was that many in Sydney. <laughs> I, I, it's just one spot and they're just everywhere. And I'm just like, Every drop, I'm just getting like, you know, massive schools of brim swimming all around me. And I just can't believe it. Things like that, you can't get without long-term experience. Yeah. So going in a club, going with guys that, um, you know, let you in and teach you will give you all of that knowledge, whether it's slowly or quickly. And then you can put that together with your own hard work and hard knowledge and then it'll increase your success i think great news guys adam stern has made his freedivingfamily.com courses available at a discount for the new spiro community if you get on freedivingfamily.com use the code spiro you'll get 20 percent off any course there's a bunch of sick courses on there there's an equalizing 
uh, stage one. There's an equalizing advanced techniques um, video there. They're two of my absolute favorites. If you have any problems with equalizing, go to freedivingfamily.com, get Adam's course and use the code Spiro to get 20% off any course. Check it out at freedivingfamily.com. Trek dude, you're killing it on the Noob Spiro podcast. Every guest you get on froths on the spearing lifestyle and the actionable info is off the chain. Over here at uh, Spearing Magazine HQ, it's the same, buddy. So many noobers are submitting their adventures, lessons learned, and pictures here at SpearingMagazine.com. I just wanted to say that noobers can get an international subscription at SpearingMagazine.com. Also, they can uh, check out our In the Face Apparel or get a subscription to the greatest Spearing Magazine on the planet. That's all right here at SpearingMagazine.com. I am Jeremy Gamble, and uh, man, I love the Noob Spiro podcast. This is Jeremy out. So, I mean, you're four years in and we've just reflected kind of on some of the, you know, the obstacles and milestones along the way for you. Um, if, if you went back from to the start of it, um, it sounds like you did quite a few really smart things. But what, what would you do differently if you could do it all over again with the knowledge that you now have? Um, one of, well, I guess one of my other obstacles that I'll, I'll just say because I didn't say that, I really had a hard time learning how to equalize properly. Okay. I was just, that was like the bane of my existence for about a year and a half. Um, I just couldn't equalize properly. Like I just couldn't frenzel and my Valsalva was really, really bad. Yep. I did lots of different things to try and learn how to do it. Um, I like looked at Adam Stern's videos, um, Aaron Solomon practiced every day for a long time. I did Ted Hardy's, roadmap to frenzel yep and um i used to i was doing that for months and months and i'd just spend like a whole week practicing one of the things that he would teach and then go on to the next thing and i still couldn't get it and every time i'd dive i had pain in my ears i'd get stressed because i couldn't get down properly yep um and it was just taking so much joy and energy Mm. out of the dive um, and then, you know, I spoke to Simon a bit and he just basically talked me through it. And with all the other stuff that I knew, I finally got it. Um, and that really was a game changer. Just understanding that your ears should not hurt when you go down. Like yeah. they should never, ever hurt. It's such a common one though. Like a lot yeah. of people wait until, because the, 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 if you're in pain, like your tympanic membrane is like bowed inwards so much that the effort required in order to equalize that space and force that membrane back out becomes progressively more and more difficult, especially when you've got pain. Like yeah. early and often is like key. It's a key game changer. What else, um, what did Simon walk, walk you through? I mean, did you like learn uh, He the, just the sort t- of talked t- to me okay. about it on the phone. And he was just like, um, I can't really remember exactly what he said, but he just said, you know, do this, do this, and then do this. And I just tried it and it worked. Um, but I'd already practiced moving all the muscles. Yeah, yeah. A lot. You know, I'd already learned how to, um, you know, close off my throat and all that from Ted Hardy's course, yeah. like, which I really <laughs> put a lot of effort in. But that was a breakthrough for me because I was like, if I can learn how to do this, I can just get to the bottom 
you know, even if it's in 10 meters, like just sit there and, <laughs> and not think about anything. Yeah. Whereas before I'd get to nine or eight meters and it would start getting pressure and then I'd like push harder and it wouldn't work. And sometimes one ear would work and it like a few times I, I pushed it and blood was coming out, you know, it was, it was just ridiculous. Like I couldn't hear very good yep. the next day. It's just, it, it shouldn't be like that. So no. if anyone's listening, <laughs> um, just go and learn how to do frenzel and just keep on practicing until you get it. It will, it will just change so much for you once you can do it. There's some really good um, things you referenced there. So, I mean, if people go to noobspiro.com forward slash TED, they can uh, find that roadmap to frenzel um, course there. If they go to freedivefamily.com, um, you can use the code Spiro and save 20% on any of Adam's courses. He's got a couple of um, – Equalizing courses, game changers. Like if that's your problem, then uh, I, like I commend you for like your persistence, man. Like yeah, it was um, hard. It was just terrible. So if I could do anything again, mm. I would have just opened up my options and just kept on trying even more, even harder, just to get that earlier. Yeah, just so I could be comfortable. Have you ever done gone and done a course with Simon? Yeah, yeah, I have oh, wow. done a class with Simon. Yeah, how was that? Was, it was amazing. It was really good. It was um most of the stuff that you'd get in a free diving course, but without without really any of the goals or things being related to time or depth. Yeah. So you know, we wouldn't really ever talk in the course about like you know trying to get to a certain depth or having a good breath hold of a certain time. Didn't do any breath hold work. It was just um, a lot of streamlining yep. and you know correct finning and positioning and stuff. Like I haven't done a normal freediving course, but like some of the things that I would you know say that I got out of it. I mean, it improved my diving so much, but. Um, stuff like the swimming, you know, like no one talks about that. Like I haven't heard many people talk about it. Like, you know, they say swim quietly, but like most of the time when you're spearfishing, you are snorkeling, you're not diving. And if you have your ankles coming out of the water, every time they hit the surface, you are spooking so many fish, Yeah, you know, and just watching him swim. And he's just so fast and streamlined it just just swimming, let alone diving. It makes a lot of difference. You know, you don't spook any fish. You get to the area that you want to dive in quickly. Things like that improve the game so much. Doing duck dives properly, equalizing, keeping your arm in, just basically streamlining and, and stuff. Then helping with like equalization you know, just it pretty much changed the game for me when I did that course. I, th- I think a, a lot of young or, or, or inexperienced Spiros think that there's a magic breathing technique that they're going to learn and all of a sudden they're <clears> going to just find themselves down in 60 feet of water and just just killing it, you know. And I think, yeah. I think the reality is is more like, a, like learning to op- operate and hunt in what you can already do, like comfortably. Yes. And then, but then B, it's like identifying, you know, all of these little 1% things that will 
help you steadily increase like your time under like yeah. um like learning streamlining like uh a, a decent duck dive technique they are the one percenters that will change the game for you not some magic breathing technique so yeah because every single time that you you do dive that things that you do like if you keep your arm tucked in it makes a difference and if you just do it every single time you'll be more comfortable and eventually it just feels better you know and when you feel better the fish come over to you that's how simple it is really i recently did my um paddy freediving instructors but my intent is more to teach courses like the way simon does um and i've actually got a, a bit of a gentleman's agreement with him to come down and and, and uh maybe um assist him while he's running one of these courses and then uh, yeah maybe maybe you should just do one yeah 100 percent. just get in there and just do one and yeah. just pretend that you don't know anything and just get in there and see how he does it i think when you dive with a guy like simon you don't have to pretend like you don't know anything i'd be learning stuff all day so it'll be it'll be great yeah yeah exactly i just i just went out with him the other day and it was just amazing like just to watch and see how he acts and how he how he hunts and stuff was just really, really good for me just to see everything and get that kind of motivation to um, try harder with spearfishing yep. and not worry about the other stuff. One of the best things about the way that he teaches is he doesn't give you too much information, yep. but he gives you the right information that you need to know to be safe. He'll give you all the safety stuff. He'll give He'll tell you what you need to know, but he doesn't just tell you too much stuff because I find that just from, you know, listening, even listening to this podcast a lot and some of the interviews that you have with like Spiro people who are like predominantly freedivers, like some of the stuff they have to say is amazing. Some of that stuff is probably good for really high tier, super experienced spear fishermen. Yeah. But a lot of the stuff, it's actually for someone who's a beginner, it's kind of um, confusing and it's a little bit overwhelming and it sort of like gives you that feeling of like, should I be doing that? And I often question that. And then if I talk to Simon, he'll be like, why are you thinking about that? Yeah. You don't need to think about that. It has nothing to do with what you're doing. Just do this. Just chill out have a good time and catch fish, you know, and there is lots of information to take away from, you know, everything. Yeah. But sometimes when your brain can only handle so much, it's about what information you choose to utilize. That is the most important thing at the time for your experience. That that's what I think is, is um, amazing for, for new guys and this space, there's so much information. It can be so technical, yeah. right? You can get super geeky on that. Sometimes I think you just need the broad strokes and the, and the basics and just someone to help you keep you focused on yeah, what, yeah. what the most important things are for changing the game. Um, massive yeah. shout out to Simon. If people go, if they just type into Google um, Australian Spearfishing Academy or if you go direct spearfishingacademy.com.au, you can check out um, Simon's courses. Um, he runs a whole bunch of 
awesome stuff in that, particularly that Sydney area. And uh, I think if I was living there, like when I was starting, I 100% would have just done it straight up. Um, yeah, it's definitely something that is um, more value than buying, you know, a new roller. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> Don't yeah. waste. Just get a gun, get your gear, and then go do the course. Yeah. Yeah. But I think another thing is that uh, you just need to get out there and get in the water yeah. as well. Like just because you do a course, it doesn't mean anything. Like nah. you if you're if you've only dived like ten times, yeah, and you go do the course, you'll get a certain amount out of it. Yeah. If you are more experienced, you'll get even more out of it. Yeah. So I think that getting a bit comfortable and just having a good time for the first year or something, just enjoy the sport for what it is. Don't take it too serious and then go and settle in and try and improve a little bit safely. Because I don't think that if you have, if you don't have any knowledge of like, free diving and all of that stuff like too deeply. I really don't think that you're going to be that in danger yep. unless the conditions are, you know, dangerous. But like. I think as long as you know not to hyperventilate and yeah, you, yes, and yeah. you can rescue your mate. And yeah. um, besides that, I would say if you learn how to do uh, just basic first aid in terms of major trauma, like in yeah. the event of like stabbing yourself with your knife or um, getting hit by a boat prop or, I mean, worst case, probably getting bitten by a shark or something. But um, I'd say joining a club yep. when you first start out, if it's an option. Look, I haven't joined a club. Um, I've been lucky to have really good people to contact and dive with. But, you know, if you don't have that opportunity like me, then I reckon – and if you have the time, that's one thing. The reason why I'm not in the club is I just don't have the time at the moment yeah. to to get in there and the times and stuff. I often work on weekends. Yeah. Um, that's that is where you could get a lot of information too, definitely. Just starting out. Awesome, Joy. We're gonna we we might come back to Spearing, but I wanna like and, and it's a good segue. You just mentioned like your work life balance. I mean, you're a chef by trade. And you've been heavily involved with 99 Spare Recipes. I really wanted to find out a little bit about where the chefing journey started from and uh, where, the, where the passion came from for, for cooking. Yeah, cool. Um, so I guess I'll start it a bit like with the spearfishing, give you guys a little bit of a story. So I grew up in a country town. Um, my family mostly was vegetarian. Wow. So I didn't really, I never really ate fish. Um, I didn't really eat meat at all. I ate some chicken and stuff here and there when I was getting a bit older. So I didn't have like that kind of like Aussie um, upbringing of like, you know, eating just like, you know, overcooked steaks and kind of things like that on the barbie <laughs> kind of stuff. <laughs> My mum and dad were um, quite poor. And mum used to love gardening. Okay. So she would just grow a lot of things in the garden, a lot of herbs, a lot of veggies and stuff. Yep. And we never, ever had anything like at school, like those like packet LCMs or anything. It was like <laughs> sandwiches, just homemade stuff, 
cookies, anything that we had was always homemade. Um, so I'm really grateful to have grown up just eating stuff from the garden and just things like that. Yeah, nice. Um, and then, yeah, I was always interested in cooking. Mum always like got me to help cook dinner and stuff. And yeah, that wasn't too elaborate or anything. She didn't have a lot of knowledge with, um, you know, different cuisines and stuff. But just the act of getting into the kitchen and um, making something and all of us sort of enjoying it did make me love cooking. Um, and I'd often just, you know, cook dinner with her and that was amazing. And then when I got a little bit older, um, I was around 14, I got a job. Actually, she got me a job in the local Chinese restaurant. Oh, wow. And I was, yeah, I was just turned 14 and I was doing dishes and just taking orders, packing, doing all that kind of stuff. And then I slowly started learning how to make spring rolls and wontons and soup and stuff. Do they call it a dish pig? Is that still a thing? Yeah. Yeah. I was just a shit kicker, man. Like just a little teenager shit kicker. I used to clean toilets too. Yeah. You know, just whatever. It was a super small town, about 2,000 people. And just there was like the chef, his wife. And they barely spoke English and they just tell me what to do as best they could. And I'd just try and be on top of things. And yep. um, I just, when we would, we would get busy sometimes because we were connected to an RSL and some of those busy days we'd just be charging around and I just, you know, it was a rush. It was amazing. Like you just feel like so useful and there was this, um, you know, just feeling of, instant gratification because it's not like, you know, you're sitting in an office working on something and then two years later it gets published and, you know, you, you're so happy. It's like you can see the people enjoying the food that you're getting out to them yeah, and yeah. you get to feel good about it that day. You're only as good as, you know, that day. It doesn't Last matter what you did day. yesterday. It's what you did today. <laughs> you can see them, you know, if they're upset, you feel like shit. Some people find that. Some people find that level of pressure like intimidating, you know, like day in, yeah. day out, you've got that pressure to deliver. Um, like you're saying, like you're only as good as the last dish that you plated and sent to someone like um, that's got to, I don't know, like. like it yeah. is hard, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's not easy. It's Hospitality um, is not an easy job and being a chef is definitely, you know, there are easy jobs out there in the trade, but Generally speaking, it is um, high pressure. It's yeah. tough. And you are constantly, you know, running on lots of different pressures. You know, food goes off. Mm. Having all the food prepared before yeah. people come in, then also cooking it and getting all the timings right yep. and getting it to to them even is a challenge sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's in, I guess, like, a multitude of pressures combined, um, but it gives you this insane rush that you can't, I haven't found anywhere else with mixed with a creative side as well. Yeah, yeah. You know? I was going to say Not that. just pure pressure, you know, you can put your heart and soul into it and people give you the gratification straight away, like I just said. So so seafood. Um I mean, we've yeah. got, got a snapshot of your journey and then we've heard about how you sort of started as a Spiro. Um, yeah. So many people are intimidated by seafood. I mean, like I'm flat out 
you know, like with the lifestyle I lead in terms of the the days I work, I love cooking, I love being creative, but a lot of the time I'm just wrecked and uh, and don't have the time and energy to put into it, you know. And and a, and a full day of diving is exactly like that. Like sometimes I get home and I just yeah. use the go tos. I, I do my um, flour, you know, flour, egg, and and salt yeah. and vinegar chip batter and shallow fry, or um, you know, a bake fish whole occasionally. I you know, but I have these go tos that I smash. And I think getting outside your comfort zone with cooking can be quite a challenge. Um, like you sort of said, you, you you grew up in the bush, so cooking seafood wasn't like a an automatic given and, and and a lot of the cooking you did sounds like what we were exposed to was vegetarian yeah mostly um so after that kind of journey in just getting um sort of into the kitchen and stuff at school i was sort of con- contemplating being a chef um my food technology teacher said you know i reckon that would be a good career for you and i decided to do it um Dropped out of school when I was 16. Yeah, I was just like, I'm going to be a chef, so I don't need to go to year 12 and just get out at year 10 and just go and go to TAFE and try and find a job. Being in small town, though, it's very hard. Had a few horrible experiences and a few amazing ones, and I ended up in um, a hotel called Morgan Valley. Um, it's a really high, highly regarded hotel in the Blue Mountains, owned by Emirates. And I worked there for a year and that was really hard. I was doing a decent amount of hours, sometimes, you know, 50 plus hours a week. Um, And I got to be exposed to seafood and stuff there. And I'd started to eat meat and seafood and stuff a bit more. But where I really learned um, to cook seafood well was after that job, I moved to Sydney. I saved up and I moved to Sydney. Um, I'd met my partner there and we moved to Sydney and I got a job at this place called the Boathouse on Blackwattle Bay. Okay. Um, and the chef there was a bit of a hard ass, but a really good mentor. Okay. He was such a great mentor. He really pushed me in like a lot of different ways. Um, oh, we used to work either two or three 16-hour shifts <laughs> and two 12-hour shifts. Wow. We would get all the seafood in every day and scale, gut, fillet, portion, you know, some of the stuff we'd hang and let it age. Other things, you know, like little goat fish and stuff, you, you, he would chuck a box of that on the tape, like on the bench and be like, here you go, get through it. And it would be like 200 goat fish. Wow. And you would have to fill it and pin bone every single one in like an hour or something. Like you are in the shit and you have to move your ass. And it was hard. Wow. You know, they would come with the guts in and scales on. So you, it wasn't um, always easy. Yep. And it took many years to get even able to cut fish. So I started on larder, which is like a cold section. And yep. we had, I think, up to 18 varieties of oysters there. <laughs> So learning the oysters and to care for those and show respect and stuff was um, definitely something that was drilled into me. Yeah. I also had a huge passion for knives and knife sharpening. Yep. So I would spend a lot of my time, my days off, pretty much all the time sharpening my knives, which helped me a lot because to cut good fish, you need to have a sharp knife. It doesn't matter what knife you have, but it has to be sharp. 
you need to have a sharp knife. It helps so much. It makes your life so much easier. I just love a functional and simple spear gun that I can trust when I pull the trigger. Killshot spear guns utilize the finest of kiln-dried Burmese teak. Killshot spear guns also combine American-made parts and fine craftsmanship to bring you accurate, reliable, and simple spear guns that you can trust fish after fish. Get $30 off any Killshot spear gun at killshotspearguns.com. Yes and amen, Uber. That's $30 off American-made performance spear guns at killshotspearguns.com. I'm really sorry for this terrible accent. Brought to you by Ed Martin at killshotspearguns.com. When you're starting to spearfish, there are a number of obstacles and some of them are financial. Doing a freediving course is something that I've always recommended on this podcast. If you can do a freediving course with a Spearow, even better. But some of us can't even afford that. I've got good news for you today. You can do a freediving safety course for free at noobspearow.com forward slash Ted. This course is brought to you by Ted Hardy from Immersion Freediving. He's got a passion for helping Spearows to die safer, smarter, and have more fun as well. This freediving safety course is practical and it's free. Check it out at freedivingsafety.com or go to noobspearow.com forward slash Ted and you'll find it there as well. Again, it's a free course just teaching you the basics of freedive spearfishing safety. Check it out, noobspearow.com forward slash Ted. In your one of your submissions for 99 Spear Recipes, like one of them is like in your like you've taken a lot of time to write this, you know, beautiful caring for your catch guide, which is is a really great sort of um, entry level into taking a fish from the time you shoot it to you know getting it home and then beginning to turn it into something. Yeah, and um, one of the parts that you went into detail with was knife selection. Yeah. So speak to that briefly if you can. Like, um, uh, so you've listed out. And I'm just pulling out the document here. You've listed listed out a number of um, of knives. You like yep. a, a flexible boning style knife, I believe. Yeah, like just the one that you'd see like the fish fillet is using, sort of at the the fish markets. Just a thin knife. Most sparrows would have it. Just a thin, flexible filleting knife. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think that that knife's a great knife to start out with because it's thin. It can cut through most things quite easily. There's not much to stick to the fish. Yeah. Um, it's cheap. Usually they're okay, you know, to sharpen. They can get reasonably sharp. Um, some things I don't like about those knives is um, they are a bit bendy and sometimes I like to have the feeling of the tip of the knife. Yeah. And I feel like in some cases it gets a bit lost in the fish, yeah. especially for certain tasks like cutting portions and yeah. sashimi and stuff. I don't even really have a flexible filleting knife anymore. I've just gone back to my butcher's knives because I worked in a meatworks for a few years. Yeah. And um, they're, they're nowhere near as flexible, but they hold an edge like nothing else. Yes. And, um, yeah. and you get that really active feedback all the way through them. Yeah, which is great. And then I just put in a, a lot of the time um, people are asking me about knives. So I just wanted to, sh- you know, give people something to sort of research. Yeah, yep. So I, I'm not like trying to give anyone too much information, but just to tell them that these are other knives and this is kind of a use. So 
I put in the two main single beveled knives, which um, they use in Japan. One's a Deba. Yep. And the benefits of that knife is it is very heavy, yep. which means that you don't have to push. It just cuts itself. It also, with a single bevel knife, you have, with any knife, you have an edge, right? Yep. So if it's a double bevel, you have an angle on one side and an angle on the other side. Yep. If you say it's 15 and 15, that yep. is meaning that the angle that is cutting the fish is 30 degrees. Yep. If you have a single beveled knife with a 15 degree edge, the back part of the knife is actually concave, okay. um, ground out. So you can almost get that to zero degrees. Oh, wow. And then you're putting 15 degrees on the other side. So that means the edge is really thin, which means that when you sharpen it, it can become super sharp and super thin, which is really good for cutting. Okay. It also means that if you hit it on something, it can chip a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> but the beauty of a Deba is that it has such a big blade as well, and it is thick and heavy, yep. but it does have that thin edge. So you're getting that weight, the feedback, and a nice um, shaped edge for cutting fish that you can get really nice, close to the bone, effortless cutting with good feedback. Like sometimes you're chopping fish like, um, how would you say it, like uh, horizontally, I guess, like, you know. Um, In cutlets. Yeah, yeah, or chops, yeah. you know, like. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously you're aiming for the gaps between sort of major bones, but yes, which knife some. do you like to use for that? Um, I, I would probably mostly just use my Deba knife. Yeah. Um, if you don't have one of those, cause they are quite expensive and, you know, I probably wouldn't waste money on them unless you have already started sharpening yep. because, you know, a blunt knife, regardless of how expensive it is, is a blunt knife. It doesn't really <laughs> make a difference. Like you yep. can have a thousand dollar blunt knife or a $10 blunt knife. They're both shit. <laughs> it's you'd be better off just spending another ten dollars to get a sharp knife again. But yeah, well, anyway, if you don't have that kind of knife, a chef's knife, yep. just the normal, you know, style knife that we use in everything, like just for normal cooking, is really good. Yep. Because it's just got a little bit of weight. It's got a high um, blade, so you can support what you're cutting with your hand. Yep. Like if you use a filleting knife. It's very thin, so if you move your hand left or right while you're cutting, it can curve yeah. in the meat, whereas yeah. when you have a big, tall knife, that fish on either side is supporting the blade, so yeah. it keeps it straight. Yeah, nice. So you can easily just get a nice cut through. Um, and, yeah, you want to aim for those little joints. So in... I think in some of the information that I've I've given in the book has a brief way of checking that. I'm not sure how detailed I went, but um, yeah, you just want to aim for those little things. And you can find that by when you gut the fish and you look from where the head is, you can just run your finger along those few little bits on the spine and see where it joins. And then you can just sort of measure one joint and guess from there, um, it is sometimes hard and you do miss. Even I miss sometimes and it is a bit annoying, but then you just got to cut through the bone. 
Yeah. So we've got the Deba and the flexible filleting knife. Yeah. How do you say it? Yanni, Yanni Giba? Uh, yep. Yep. Yanagaba. The <laughs> knife, that knife is amazing for portioning fish and cutting thin slices. Um, it's similar to the Deba. It has a thicker blade. It's got a bit of weight and it does have that thin edge with the hollow back. And being able to make it super duper sharp, it, it can usually the steel quality in those is really good as well. So you can get those just so sharp that they'll just stick into your chopping board. Um, and when you have a knife like that with that bit of weight and you go to like, say you've got to fill it and you want to cut like, you know, four portions out of it, all you do is just put it on there and just pull back and the weight of the knife and the sharpness will just cut through it. So you won't get any of those like crooked kind of portions and stuff. It'll just be a nice clean cut. And same as when you're cutting sashimi, you don't want to be like pushing down or pulling too much. You just want to sort of pull the knife backwards gently and let it fall and cut down. You can pressure a little bit when cutting sashimi just to make it a bit fluid. But um, yeah, you don't want to be pulling and pushing too much. Some people do that and then you'll see that the sashimi looks a bit ripped. Yeah, I was going to say like when I when I cut sashimi with my boning knives, like they just, it's just not as, it's not as nice. Like you can see the gap in presentation, like the precision's not there with um, portioning and then, um, yeah, the, the opacity of the or the of the bit of sashimi is not as as clean, and it's yes. just like I guess that's that thirty degree thing, but also the sort of the backwards and forwards motion as you as you're cutting through is like not as not quite as nice. So I was curious yeah. about these knives. So there's the the Deba and the Yan uh, Yanagaba. Was, was it? <laughs> yeah, that's close enough, man. I'm not Japanese. I probably sound like an idiot saying it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> but um. Yes, yeah, that's right. And you know what? Even with that 30-degree edge or what, you know, that's just a made-up number because it depends on how how you sharpen. It was just an example. But um, even with a thicker edge, you if it's sharp, it's still going to be fine. It's still going to be great. Don't think about it too much. But it's just that, you know, the Japanese, they love to push it to the next level. And that's sort of their forte. Um, one other thing I could just say on the sashimi front is that when you cut it with a sharp knife and you put that fish in your mouth, it does feel different. It has a different mouth feel. When you do break it open and it's not on a certain angle against the grain and stuff, it doesn't feel as good when you're eating it. Yeah, 100%. And that is a huge difference and that will what, what uh, that's what would make your sashimi look and taste better. And it's not really the flavor of the fish. It's just that that way that it's cut cleanly just yeah. feels good when you eat it. Yeah, knives have so much to do with it. Yeah. I was just thinking my housemate likes to cut vegetables with my uh, with my nice knives. So, like, eat, I pull them out. Like, I've got, like, an esky full of fish. Like, I might have half a dozen fish I've got to portion up. And then I've got to get out a stone and just <laughs> just put a good clean edge back on both of them. Yeah, which like, you know the importance of doing yeah. butchery. It's but just, it's, it's time consuming though. I, I almost want to have a knife set that stays in a pack 
Mm. And it does not get used for anything except what I'm using it for because then it just saves me all that work of um, – but then, like, you know, maybe you've invested $200 or – I mean, that, and that's for a fairly uh, inexpensive knife set, I think. Yeah. Um, it, it, and, like, I've seen a couple getting around for about that $200 mark and you get a, a couple of decent knives and a steel and with a hard case – and then, uh, or even one of those soft cases, I'll, I'm tempted to buy one and just tuck it away so no one else has access to it. Yeah. Well, what what I do in professional environment when I'm working in like a restaurant that is very prep heavy, um, I have a whole bunch of knives. I have I've got a lot of knives, um, but I will have like say uh, something for slicing something for filleting, something for breaking down like chickens or taking like silver skin off um, meat and stuff. And then I'll have a chef's knife and maybe a paring knife or a small knife. But I have multiple sets of those. So I'll just um, sharpen all of them. And then I will just pull one whole set out, take it to work. And then when I get home, I'll pack that one away and have the other one out and just keep rotating them, um, you know, just it's easier to just sharpen everything in one go and just put it away and then just bring it out and it's ready to go. You know, you could do that easily with filleting knives. My old boss used to have about eight Dexter Russells, um, the filleting knives, yep, and he yep. would sharpen all of them and put them all on this magnetic block. Wow. And as he was filleting all the fish in um, the day, He'll just go through all of those knives and then at the end of the day or a couple of days, he'll just resharpen the whole batch. Jeepers. So, yeah. <laughs> but we'd break a lot, a couple hundred kilos sometimes in one. Wow, wow. Yeah. Until you get like four big 16-kilo mahi-mahis. Yeah. If you keep a knife on a steel, it will hold a good edge for a good long while. Like, um, yeah, for sure. Especially when you when you know and understand how – to avoid like just straight blade into bone and um, yeah, so don't put your knives in the dishwasher. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. It will just ruin the edge. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's a lot of little things, but that's probably. I was going to ask about like um, uh, the mesh gloves or you know like the cut resistant gloves. Um, obviously, like I've spent a couple of times recently out on um, the Eastern Voyager, and the deckies will be using um, mesh gloves. And because they're, they're processing quite a, a large amount of fish at once, have you ever invested in one? Um, we didn't use mesh gloves, but we used to use, um, you know, the gloves that some guys use for cray diving? Yeah. Just those like Dyneema kind of gloves yep. from um, like Bunnings or whatever. Yep. We used to have a whole bunch of those and we'd use them for scale gutting. Okay. Because um, you get more grip and like, I don't know if you've ever tried to scale like a bass grope or a barra or something. Yep. But, or even just flatheads, like um, scaling those, there's a like toxin, I think, in the spines. Yep. And if they spike you, you just keep on bleeding. Yeah. It just, your blood doesn't clot. So, like, if you have to scale and gut and fill it 50 flatheads, <laughs> you'll probably get spiked a couple times. So, yep. the gloves would just sort of like give you a bit more handling and a bit more grip. But I've never used like proper cut resistant gloves like those mesh ones or anything. Yeah, I find that it just sort of inhibits. 
got a sweet deal for you today, guys. Go to freedivingfamily.com and learn from Adam Stern and a select team of experts on different disciplines. There's Frenzel, Advanced Frenzel, Hands-Free Equalization, Mouthful, Deep Frenzel Equalization, Bifinning Essentials. These are courses that will give you the 1% that will allow you to improve. Use the code SPIRO to get 20% off any course at freedivingfamily.com. Again, that's the code SPIRO to get 20% off at freedivingfamily.com. Thanks, Adam and team. Love it. Today's new Spiro podcast is brought to you by Penetrator Fins, used by leading freedivers and Spiros, including Australian Spiros like Ian Puckridge, Kate Rogers, uh, the dynamic freediving record holder Ben Eckhart, Hawaii's Justin Lee, Kylie Umeda, as well as Canadian ice diver Magali Coat. Penetrator Fins are praised by proven performers from all over the planet. Have you got yourself a pair? Visit penetratorfins.com, use the code NoobSpiro to save $25 on any pair. That's right, go to penetratorfins.com, use the code NoobSpiro, choose yourself a pair of Penetrator Fins and get reliability that you can depend on. Penetratorfins.com. Have you built yourself like a, a fish uh, cleaning sort of station? Like, I see some people with these elaborate sort of like Teflon boards and bench setups with a, you know, with a hose right next to it and everything's just super easy. You, you drop your S gear and then boom, you're into it and uh, you've got a nice clean space that's like away from the house and stuff. So all the scales and stuff that ends up on the ground doesn't hurt or offend anyone. And then uh, have you ever done that? Um, well, not really. I have a, like a picnic table on my balcony that I'll use if like we get a bigger fish, like a kingy or something, and I want to fill it at home. And this might sound dodgy either if I, if I can't – okay, firstly, I can take my stuff to work and we have a walk-in cool room bigger than my whole apartment. So I, if I have lots of fish or something, I can just take it there and use a professional kitchen. Um, so that's fine. But if I'm doing it at home, I have actually filled up my bathtub with ice cubes and salt water and put a 20 kilo king in there um, and use that as an ice bath for the night because I just didn't want to prep it that day and I couldn't put it in the fridge. So that works. You just make sure you clean your bath <laughs> your um, first and afterwards as well. Otherwise, your missus might kill you if there's like blood everywhere and shit. I was it does, it does work. Um, and then I usually will just, um, what I try to do at home for filleting is often I'll, most of the time, unless I really know that I want to do something specific with the fish, because yep. a lot of the fish that I'll shoot is not too big, maybe 30 to 40 centimeters. I'll just scale and gut them in the ocean just before I'm leaving. Yeah. Pop, pop them in my esky. And then just quickly drive home. It's only like a half an hour drive, so it's nothing too serious. Just do some ice packs in the esky. Yep. Um, and I usually just freeze like takeaway containers of water, so you get like like pretty massive chunks of ice in there. Yep. That keep it really cold. And then once I get home, I will just um, I like to not rinse my fish too much or wet it too much, so I'll just get a knife. I'll put some tea towels down on my big chopping board and I just scrape them down. So I just scrape them with the knife and then wipe them with paper towel. Yep. And then I pop them on another tray. I just bought lots of little, like I think they're 30, 40, 45 centimeter trays okay. from Woolies. 
and they stack inside each other okay. and they're really handy to put your fish on. Okay. Um, and then I just put my towel on one of those and then just scrape my fish down, give it a nice wipe, make sure I wipe out the guts and everything and then pop it on the towel. And then I have these reusable, it's like reusable cling wrap. Yep. It's just like a silicone mat um, that you can just wash and then dry and then just reuse. So I don't try not to use like cling wrap and like plastic wrap and stuff. Okay, interesting. And then put that over, put it in the fridge and I pretty much always leave my fish overnight. Mm. I almost never bother filleting it that day unless I'm camping and then I try to fillet it as soon as I get back to the campsite so it doesn't go into rigor mortis. Oh, yeah. So now we're getting into sort of that area that has really sort of been a game changer for me. It's it's dry aging or alternatively like um, the fresh is best, the old idea, I guess, is what we're yeah. So Yeah, that's – So, I mean, tell us about rigor mortis and, and what dry aging does. So – I don't. Wanna, I'm not. I'm not really like. You know, I'm a chef. I've got a bit of experience, but I'm not like a complete expert in like science and stuff. So I don't want to go too crazy. Yeah. I might yeah. say some things that might not be correct. But yeah, no, you're right. All good. Basically, bro, science is the best. Yeah, from my bro science and my <laughs> little bit of um, you know, experience along my journey. Yeah. Well, firstly, let me say, being in the restaurant, most of the fish that you get caught out at sea brought in, processed there, like then sent to your um, restaurant. Most of that stuff is already a day old. It's already gone through the process. Yep. And most of the fish that most people would get is like that these days. So it was a, quite an experience for me starting spearfishing to learn about this because I would get some fish and try and cook it. I'm like, why is it doing that? Like, why does it do that? Why is it curling up? Why doesn't the skin stay flat? Um, why doesn't it taste as good? You know, and I would just practice and try all these different things. And I, I know about rigor mortis, so I really started paying attention to the way that I was brain spiking, bleeding, and doing that and found what works best for me. So with rigor mortis, basically, simply, you just want to let the fish relax there's a chemical reaction in the fish after you kill it yeah. that causes the proteins in the fish to tense up yep. and then relax. It's a really simple way to say it. Um, and you don't need to really know much more than that, but basically you need to know that when the fish first is, is killed and you eat the flesh straight away, Often it looks a little bit more wet. If you fillet a fish straight away, you'll know what I mean. Mm. It looks a little bit, sometimes it looks a little bit more wet, a little bit more soggy, especially like um, not not so much big pelagic fatty fish, but like little reef fish you'll notice. Yep. And the fillets, if you like grab the fillet and wiggle it and flop it, it's really floppy, right? Yeah. It's soggy. It kind of like flops around. Yep. Um, if you cook it like that, it's harder to cook. It's a lot harder to cook. It will curl sometimes, buckle in the pan, um, and sometimes a bit of moisture will come out of it too. Yep. If you 
so then if you leave it in the fridge, you, you get it whole and you just leave it in the fridge, usually after a few hours, you'll see the fish start to firm up. You can feel that um, squishiness is gone and it will become rock hard. Mm. And I'm sure you, you've seen that even sometimes pulling them out of the esky and they're all bent, like a bent cricket bat. Yeah, you could almost lift it up by the tail and <laughs> the fish is just stiff as a board. Oh, they make for fantastic photos when they're like that, don't they? Yeah, they're just like a big bent banana. Like, and you can't, you can force it, but you can get tearing of the fillets when you do that. Yeah. So it's best to not fillet it at that point. Keep it cold, whether it's in the ice or in the um, fridge, and just let it relax. And once you see that that stiffness is gone and the fish can move a little bit and be flexible, you'll notice that it's firmer than when it was fresh, but it isn't rock hard. There still is a softness to the flesh, and that flesh has become a lot easier to fill it, for one it'll make your life so much easier. Like it holds together. It feels nice. Um, and when you cook it, it's already relaxed. So it's not going to buckle. Yep. All right. Like some of the, if you look on my Instagram, you see some of the fish that I've posted with like the crispy skin and stuff. Yep. Like some, some guys are asking me how to do that. It's not hard. You just put the fish in the pan and cook it. It's really easy, but it's about what you do beforehand. And that makes a huge difference. Like if you don't want the fish to buckle and do all that kind of stuff, this is a really helpful thing. Yep. Um, I don't know, have you tried doing this much? Like, I have. I have done it with a surgeon fish which doesn't have scales though. It's, uh, yeah, you just peel the skin off. Well, I just left it on. I dried, I um, filleted the fish oh, yeah? um, while it was pretty much in rigor and then so it was that hard – Thing and then pretty much just filleted it because they're, sometimes they're real easy to fill it, get nice clean bones and stuff. But I mean, sur- surgeon fish are generally easy to fill it anyway. Knock, yeah. the, knock the fillets off. I um, paper towel the hell out of them, uh, which is not great for the environment, but great for getting a fish dry. And then I wrapped them in paper towel and put them in a Ziploc bag and left them in the fridge for 48 hours. And then I, yeah, okay. And then I pulled them out, changed the paper towel, and put them in for another 24. And then when I pulled them out, um, they made some of the best ceviche I've ever eaten in my life, and it was surgeon fish. Kill fish with precision and power, sending shafts from a stable platform with Kill Shots spear guns. Made in the Florida Keys by Ed Martin, you're buying American-made, dependable spear guns. Get $30 off any Kill Shot spear gun at killshotspearguns.com. Yes and amen, Nuba. That's $30 off American-made performance spear guns at killshotspearguns.com. It says if they're in the shop or on the phone, they can cash in by saying, crikey, mate, or the Noob Spiro podcast sent me. Check them out at killshotspearguns.com, based in the Florida Keys. Guys, one of the biggest struggles in spearfishing is finding a buddy. Now, imagine a Tinder for fishing. Like, hey, want to grab some beers and go catch some fish? Noob Spiro's latest partner is Fishing Trips. It's a sick app. You can get it on Google Play or on the uh, iOS App Store. And um, find yourself some buddies, even if you're just getting started. Um, Don't go diving alone. Get the Fishing Trips app. Download it on Google Play or the iOS App Store. Find yourself some new spearing buddies 
and get your mates onto it too with the Fishing Trips app. So we can talk about that a little bit. So what you've got a few different types of aging, right? So you've, you've got that like 24-hour period where you need to go through rigor. That's going to improve the feeling of the fillets a lot. It's going to improve the texture, the way it cooks. And then you can go really crazy if you want and go into complete dry aging. Um, I'm not an expert at that. I've dabbled in it a little bit. But, you know, if you want to see some of the things, you can look up um, Josh Neeland or um, Dry Age Fish Guy on Instagram. Those guys are just nuts. Like They just love it. They go ham on it and they have professional environments to do it in. It is quite hard to do at home without like a spare fridge or something. Yeah. So I personally don't really do it much at home. I've done it a few times and um, very. there's a lot of things that happen when you do it. But really simply put, the if you've ever seen um, – the oils and the sinew in between yep. each layer of the flake. So that starts to break down as the fish ages and the flavors in the oils start to come out and kind of meld yeah. through the fish. So it increases flavor. This is that um, gelatin from the, from the bone structure and stuff starts to permeate through the flesh. Is this kind of what we're talking about? Is it that? Is it to that um, level? That would happen as well, but I'm not. I'm not even talking about that. Just literally, imagine you've got a kingfish, right? And you cut the fillet off, and then you cut it into some loins for sashimi, and you look at that um, loin, and you can see each layer. Even just like imagine a piece of tuna, you can see that big piece of sinew between each layer yep. of the flake in the slice. So that starts to break down. So let's say you, I've done this. Um, this is what basically what you did with your surgeon fish. You take your loin, wrap it in paper, put it in a container in the fridge or a bag, leave it, keep changing the paper towel each day. And each day, if you want, you can cut a piece off and try it. And you'll start to notice that that, that sinew in between each layer will break down and it will become really soft. At the start, especially if it's a large fish, that sinew can be a little bit overwhelming, a little bit chewy, especially if it's closer to the tail. But as the age goes on, the flavor comes out, the oil comes out of the fish and that sinew breaks down. So it becomes really soft and flavorsome. Um, It's delicious. I recommend doing that with most sashimi, like if especially like larger fish, Kingfish tuna. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I'm pretty sure that a lot of the time in Japan with the tuna loins and stuff, they do age those before you eat them as sashimi. They're not like fresh. And that would have a lot to do with it. And I've seen when I went to um one of the fish factories in Sydney, um, it was called Decosti's. There was a guy there who does specializes in tuna from Japan and he sort of went through that fish towel wrapping technique on a basic level. So that's sort of where I started picking that up and we sort of did a little bit of that at my work as well. But yeah, it's, it's really good for that. And in terms of the whole fish dry aging, 
when you start to age it, basically you're, you're going to lose a little bit of moisture, especially if you do it at home. And when you lose moisture, depending on the fish, it can dry the fish out, but it, it still increases the flavor. So you've sort of just got to try and find the balance between the oiliness and the fattiness of the fish and how long you age it because if it's something that isn't too fatty, then if you lose too much moisture, it can become quite dry and unpleasant. So it's just getting in, in that sort of like sweet spot. So I would just try it out and maybe just try a few days at first and then try an extra day. I think it's good uh... – it's a good. It's a good time right now to just tell people like um, that. This book is up on Kickstarter right now. Ninety nine spare recipes, and people will be able to check out some of what Joy's been talking about, particularly with the dry aging technique, with caring for your catch. Like um, he's done an absolute bang up job, and and submitted some really um, awesome cornerstone content for this book. Like um, the, this book's designed to give people that first sort of one or two or maybe even three rungs on the ladder to get them into starting to cook and expand their horizons with the seafood. And, um, man, your contributions have definitely helped us to do that in this book. Um, it's, um, it's bloody awesome. Yeah. I hope that I've kept yep. it simple enough to get old mate who just likes to put his fish yep. in crumbs <laughs> to just learn something. <laughs> just, just learn something and just try it one new thing and that's all I'm, I'm happy with that. And that's, that is what I try to do with my social media presence in Sydney. Um, all I want is for people to just have another crack at something that they probably just think is trash. Oh man. That's all. That's all how you I come do. on our radar too. Like um, your recipes that are available on USFA, I think.com. On the USFA website, they are phenomenal. And um, people can check out Spiro Chef on Instagram. Joy, we're, we're running out of time. We're going to circle back in the future and talk even more, my yeah, friend. Yeah. But, um, I mean, what do you want to do with Spiro Chef? What's, have you got any vision or any ideas about what you want to continue to do with your spearfishing? Is it a hobby for you or are you envisioning some uh, something further for you down the track in this space? Um. It's just a way for me to relax and get yeah. good seafood. And with my social media, I just want to – I've used it a little bit for, I guess, um, you could say networking yeah. with people. That's what I've been – it's been very successful for me to find people who enjoy what I enjoy and have a chat with them. I've met lots of cool guys and got lots of good experiences out of it. So I think that I don't – really care about pushing anything too much, but just showing you guys what I like to do. And hopefully I can meet some more like-minded people and go from there really. Um, yeah. Just, just want also like one of the things I like to do in, in Sydney is just, um, I guess give the new divers just like myself and, and even just like I was just, you know, a couple years ago, a bit more courage to be proud of their catch because 
when I started and I went on social media, it was really bad. It was trash. Like every single post someone would put up of some fish that they were so proud of, they would just get slaughtered. And then everyone would just hate on them and just tell them to boil it with rocks, you know. Since I've started putting lots of posts up and got a bit of a following on there, I don't see it much anymore. And often there's a lot more positive, I guess, um, communication around those fish and around any fish. And there's actually a bit more of a discussion and not just trolling. So I think that like if I can help do that and just, you know, just stick my neck out there and I, you know, you get haters, but you just got to take it on the chin to help the new guys, you know. I think one thing with you, Joy, is like, um, you know, you might still be um, I considered maybe, you know, you might consider yourself a, a noob when it comes to maybe hunting or the freediving side of spearfishing. But yeah. in terms of the cooking skills, like you're, you know, way far and above most of us. And I think that's one thing that I always hope to get in the podcast is to help people to have the courage to just be a noob in different areas. And because that's when you learn, like you, yeah. you're able to learn and be influenced. Exactly. And when you know a lot, then you're, the circle of people you're able to learn from becomes smaller. But um, there's still reward in that as well. But I mean, every area of, of spearfishing, and there's so much to it, you know, whether it's the technical, uh, you know, um, hunting side of things or whether it's like equipment or, or videography or whatever it is you want to get into, like you're not going to be good at everything and you're definitely not going to be good at everything straight away. And I think, I think spearfishing contrasts with um, a lot of the modern lifestyle and the fact that everything is slowly earned and slowly gained with the skills and the, and the knowledge. That yes. you learn. And um, man, yes. great job influencing the spearfishing community in the area you live in and making a positive impact on the spearing world. I was stoked when you grabbed the bull by the horns and, and um, got involved with 99 Spear Recipes. So um, thanks for your contributions, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's been awesome. And I'm keen to see how it um, turns out. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. I'm I'm very excited to see some of the recipes. You'll be one of the first people with a hardcover in your hands, buddy, just like every other um, Spiro Chef that has contributed. But you are the original at Spiro Chef on Instagram. Follow follow Joy along on his journey and uh, connect with him. If you want to see some of his recipes and uh, talent on display, Buy a hardcover copy of 99 Spirit Recipes available on Kickstarter right now. Um, and uh, awesome, Joy. We'll um, have to hook up again in the future, man, and do another one, eh? Yeah, sounds good, mate. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, I kind of feel like a bit privileged to be on here because I've listened to so many legends on here and now I'm on here myself. I don't know what to say, hey, but thank you so hey, much. contributing your expertise, my, my friend. So, yeah. good, man. That's amazing. <laughs> All right, Joy. Catch you, man. See you, mate. Hey, guys. Some absolute game changers there with Joy. I really enjoyed picking his brain a bit, particularly about seafood. He, he's really he's a guy that absolutely digs into it, and he gigs right out on the stuff. He's written some phenomenal guides in 99 Spare Recipes. We're absolutely spoiled to have him, uh, as is the USFA, if you want to check out some of Jai's uh, recipes there. But join him on Instagram, at SparrowChef. Uh, he's doing some awesome things that you can observe, mimic, and take home and do yourself. Uh, 
I hope you enjoyed it again. Uh, if you want to check out 99 Spare Recipes available, it's only available for probably the next 24, 48 hours. Check it out at noobspare.com forward slash 99 recipes. Thanks for bringing this project to life. Thanks for your support of the podcast and sharing the love all around the socials, telling your mates about the podcast. All of these things have uh, helped contribute to make this thing what it is today. My heartfelt uh, thanks go to all you guys. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to get another episode done before Christmas. This I'll be honest with you, this last little bit of season, this um, Kickstarter campaign, it's absolutely drawn every last gasp of energy out of me. I've had an absolute ball doing it, don't get me wrong, but I'm looking forward to a well-earned break uh, and spending a bit of Christmas time with my family. Um, so, But that's it for me. I don't even know what episode I've got next, but I'm, I'm thinking we're going to have a massive 2022. Thanks for all your support around the traps. And uh, that's it for me, Shrek, over and out. Precision engineered tools for the family jewels. Noob Spiro thanks Manscaped, and so should you. I thank Manscaped. Everyone in my life thanks Manscaped because I have got clean goodness down there. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code Noob Spiro. One word at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code Noob Spiro. Unlock your confidence. Always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Men, if you've been shaving with the same nut trimmer on your face, you've been doing it all wrong. No person wants to end up with pubes in their mouth. Go to manscaped.com, use the code Noob Spiro. The Noob Spiro podcast is incredibly proud to be partnering with Neptonics.com. It's solid gear that works, equipment you can rely on. It's the very best in spearing gear from around the planet. Neptonics is also the one-stop shop for all your spearfishing gear, particularly in the US. They've got free shipping on all orders over $99 in the US. Furthermore, you can use the code NOOB10 to save 10% off on your entire shopping basket at Neptonics.com. Use the code NOOBSPIRO at Neptonics.com. Today's episode was an absolute banger, and so is our major sponsor, Adreno. Visit them at adreno.com.au. They have a huge range of equipment. You can find it at adreno.com.au. Use the code NoobSpear at checkout. When you shop online, you can save $20 on every purchase over $200. You can even use that code in-store at some of their huge mega stores Australia-wide. Price be guarantee on any Australian spearfishing equipment price. Again, visit them at adreno.com.au. Use the code NoobSpear. Yeah.